the blessing of this hour has brought us to this time, this moment in which for the next few moments we'll reflect on a section, a portion of the Word of God. It's always a blessing that we have been given to assemble as we are on this first day of the week. And so it is on this third Sunday in January that we have already sung these powerful songs of praise and adoration. And we've also lifted our thoughts collectively in prayer to God. By the same token, we also now will be challenged or at least spend some time reflecting on a part of the Word of God. It's so good to see everyone here today, our membership, our visitors alike. It's our honest and earnest affirmation that we truly hope each can be brought to a position in which we can worship God in truth and in spirit. The Christians in civil government. You might appreciate that that lesson will bring us to some thoughts that I've tried to at least set before you as we begin the lesson like this. The honor and the privilege of this day, spoken of in passages such as the one I list at the top, even in Nehemiah's day, it was truly a tremendous and honorable thing to worship God. You and I are doing that today. There's a great deal of tension that exists in many places and in many ways between Christianity, as it's revealed in the Bible, and the civil government. I'd like to develop a lesson today and ask you to consider it. In fact, there will be a sequel to it next Sunday morning. And so as we develop some premises, some bases today, let's talk about the civil government and Christianity. The tension I list on that slide is not one that has gone unnoticed to any of us. I believe we've all perhaps ourselves made statements and maybe even have heard many others make them too. If things continue the way that they're going in terms of our nation and our government and what's forbidden and what is upheld, what will it be like in 40 years, maybe even 20 years? Will the day come when it will not be upheld by law for folks to meet and worship? When you and I read the book of Acts, we know then and there that there were all kinds of challenges and difficulties and serving God often was done under threat of life. Will things like that at some point happen again in our land? I don't know. Nobody does. But the fact is, there are some things that the Bible does teach us as it relates to civil government and the, and, and the Word of God. And I hope in this lesson that we can appreciate some of those things and then finish it up next Sunday morning. As you come to the close of that slide, though, you'll notice that I thought the timing of it's the reason I chose today. You know that there is a major matter taking place from the civil government's perspective in our country, even as we speak. Friday of this week, the 45th president of our nation will be inaugurated. And you know that we're not using the pulpit to defend or, in fact, to speak against anybody, but we are going to talk about the civil government today. And what does the Bible say about it? Whether it be the one taking office this coming Friday, whether it be the one that took office eight years ago, the fact is the Bible has a lot to say about this. I believe we'll each be impressed by it. And the thoughts that we learn should be of great advantage to us as we strive to be noble servants more than anything else to the God of heaven. And so it is as we close that slide. I've divided the lesson into four parts today. Let's begin to appreciate first of all the following. Civil government. The first lesson that would be vitally significant for you and me to appreciate is this. Civil government's ordained by God. 
In fact, throughout the Word of God, we learn rather prolifically the following set of truths. That civil government is such that the God of heaven ordains its right to exist. And furthermore, ordains in it the power of authority in such a way that those beneath it are expected to be subservient to it. Let's develop some of those thoughts now. Put a little meat, if you please, on that initial skeleton. First of all, could I ask you to notice authority is a vitally important subject in every regime and every realm of life. For instance, in the family, God ordained the husband is to be the head of the wife. And furthermore, those children are to, in fact, serve and obey the parents, Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. And so in the home, in the family, authority is of basic significance for that family to operate and to run, if you please, in the way that it should. But what about the church? Well, one more time, here's another realm in which God has set forth authority. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and there are no others. Colossians 1.18 affirms that in Him all preeminence dwells. And yet you and I know that He has bequeathed elders the right in the local congregation. And you and I are expected to obey them, Hebrews 13.17. And so, yet another time, we notice authority is a vital part of the way in which God has orchestrated things in this world to run. Our discussion today doesn't surround per se the home or per se the church. But what about the next one? Civil governments. You and I know that's another realm in which authority does seem to exert itself. Does it do so with God's approval? I'd ask you to consider with me for the moment Romans 13, verse verse number 1. In the midst of that Roman letter, we encounter the following statement, and as we discuss it in a moment, I believe we'll each be reminded about the circumstance in which Paul wrote it. Romans 13, verse number 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now you and I might immediately ask, what are these higher powers to which Paul refers? The context makes it clear it's civil authority. It's the civil governments of that day. And so remembering that Paul, of course, at that time, it was the Roman power that was the powerful one at the moment. The Caesar was in power in Rome, and there was, of course, the ruling character of the Senate beneath him. Paul said again, there is no power but of God. Even civil government, you see, is such that God has bequeathed it the right to exist. He has affirmed that this is the way that is better. And the verse ends by saying the powers that be, these civil governments, they're ordained of God. First thing then that you and I might cement in our heart then is the existence of civil government is in accordance to the things of God. But that immediately lets you note the following. Some might immediately use this as a time to question, but that Roman government was in many ways a very evil thing. The Caesar often did what was an evil set of choices, and the decisions that that government made in many cases were not consistent with the truth of the Word of God. And yet the fact is, still its right to exist was bequeathed to it by God. 
Notice again, it says, the powers that be are ordained of God. You and I live in a land where the government doesn't always do what's consistent with the Bible. Sometimes decisions are made, laws are enacted, choices are set forth, and those are not consistent with the Bible. We all understand that. Our government has chosen to fund Planned Parenthood. It funds abortions. It funds a lot of things that we as Christians, in fact, we hate it. But yet the power that be, it's ordained of God. In other words, it's not to say that God approves every decision that the government or the Congress makes. But what Paul does say is it has a right to exist by virtue of the fact that God has declared it so. You'll notice as you look at the bottom, a few other statements might well be in order. Some might argue, well, if a government does what's evil and does not do what's consistent with the Word of God, why wouldn't it be better for there to be no government? Could I ask you to contemplate that for a moment? If we lived in a land in which literally everybody had right to do whatever he or she chose, the way that he chose, it would be awful. It would be a horrific place to live. Can you think about what would happen if everybody did what was right in his own eyes and that was fine? There'd be no security of any kind. There would be, in fact, no sets of protective matters by which each one could feel serenity and tranquility. May I suggest to you the Bible gives us a picture of something like that in Judges chapter 17 to 21. In the closing five chapters of the book of Judges, we have a picture of a land in which twice it is said of that land, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. If you ever want to see what things could degenerate into if there weren't any government, read the closing five chapters of Judges. It's awful. There was a man, I'll just list a few of the things. He stole a lot of money from his mother. His mother, not only upon that with what money she did have, she in fact had a statuesque built for him that was idolatrous in character. Two chapters later, we find rampant homosexuality. We notice the dismemberment of a corpse in those chapters. And I've only touched the surface. Point is, when everybody does what's right in his own eyes, it is awful. Thank God the God of heaven, that He has ordained powers to exist, by which, in fact, some degree and character of protective measure can, in fact, be exerted. You'll notice as we close that slide, the Bible doesn't come out and say that one particular type of civil government is the only one that God upholds. Think about the various kinds you read about in the Bible. May I call to your attention, in the Old Testament, when Israel demanded a king, the kind of government that God allowed them to set up was a monarchy. Saul was the first king, and David was the second, and Solomon was the third, and so on after them. In the book of Judges, it was a confederacy was the kind of government they had. And notice, both of them were such that God ordained those things to exist. As you and I come to the New Testament... Christians of the New Testament era that you and I read of in the Bible, they lived beneath the Roman government, which it was a republic kind of government. You begin to notice that it's not that God has ordained one kind of civil government. He says the powers that be, whatever kind they are, 
He has given to them the right to exist and the power that they wield. Our second lesson will then be this one. Not only does civil government have the right to exist by the God of heaven, but perhaps it's shocking to consider the following. As you and I study the Word of God, we often learn that God has been rather intricately involved in the events of civil government. Let's take a few moments and develop that point like this. I've listed a number of verses, and we're going to highlight several of them as we go, but perhaps somewhat briefly. Several times in Scripture, we have the strong statement made that God is over the nations. I've listed several from the Psalms. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight, as well as Psalm 67, 4. Psalm 113, verse 4 says, God governs the nations. That's a very broad statement. And the word govern means exactly what you think it does. It means to lead, to oversee. It literally means to, to guide. The nations that exist upon this earth... And of course, there are hundreds and hundreds of countries. The civil governments that exist are such that, of course, the great power of heaven is over every one of them. Now, isn't it true that in addition to that, might you notice several rather specific and detailed statements? When you think about the development of civil government in the Bible you find this overwhelming truth that on many occasions God has specifically and directly worked in the matters brought forth by those civil governments, sometimes to establish them and sometimes to destroy them. Let's begin to look at them like this. In the 19th chapter of Genesis, what do you and I recollect about the development of that chapter? Here was a rather notable set of cities. Sodom and Gomorrah were their names. They no doubt had a civil government. Maybe there was a mayor in that town, likely some kind of city council, if you please. And yet, by virtue of their choice and the movement throughout the character of their peoples, God made a decree to rain fire and brimstone on them, and He destroyed them. That civil government was brought to naught. The God of heaven overruled it. It was He who brought about its dissolution. He destroyed those cities. You and I remember, of course, why it had arraigned itself and motivated itself in a direction opposite the things that were demanded by God in truth. Let's consider another one. The next one I would ask you to consider, Judges chapter 3. Now the language again is very clear because it says here was a section in which the God of heaven, He, he allowed Israel, His people, to be oppressed by an enemy nation. Now, it doesn't say just the enemy nation chose to do it. It says God permitted it so He allowed it to come to this, to this consideration. What does that indicate again about God's overruling of Israel at the time? Although Israel had its judges, still the God of heaven was in control. Look at the third example that I ask you to consider. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, there comes a moment, and it's a rather pivotal time in ancient Israel, when they make a demand. They approach Samuel, the last judge of Israel, and say, Give us a king that we may be like the nations. They demanded a king. We aren't happy with this government we've got now. We want another one. 
Samuel prayed earnestly to God. And in response, God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Let's give them what they want. And so God allowed them to have a king. But did you notice in 1 Samuel 9, 15, who the first king was and who selected him? You knew where we were going with that. God picked, God handpicked Saul as the first king. Now think about that. Here was Israel. We want a king, and yet God picked who the first king was going to be. God told Samuel, you go and you anoint Saul. So here was an instance in which the governor, the ruler, the leader, if you please, was picked by God. In fact, while we're on that subject, look at the next one. The time came, you and I remember, that Saul behaved himself very unwisely, in fact, disobediently. He chose to do exactly what God said for him not to do, and later he abruptly failed to do what God told him to do. As a result of all of that, isn't it true that God rejected Saul? He, God explicitly said to him, I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to one better than you are. Who was the second king of Israel and who picked him? Same answer as before. God told Samuel, you go and anoint David. You go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the next king. And isn't it amazing that when the time came that Samuel came before Jesse, one by one the sons of Jesse were brought before Samuel. That's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one. And seven of them passed. And none of them, per the choice of God, had been selected. And Samuel said, are these all the boys? And of course, Jesse replied, well, there is one more, but he's the one out taking care of the sheep. You don't want him. Go get him. And sure enough, he was brought, and God said through Samuel, there's the one. Who picked the second king of Israel? God did. Here was an instance in which that civil character of government was such that God had a very strong and mighty hand in it. Look at the next example. In 2 Kings 17, 18, as we come later in Old Testament history, the Assyrian Empire and its might and strength. Remember, the children of Israel in the northern kingdom was such that the days were very dark. But that government was still teetering. It was still in existence what happened to it? That text expressly says God brought the Assyrians. God turned His people over to them. So who dissolved that government? God did. What about Judah in 2 Chronicles 36, 17? When the Babylonians came and overran the southern kingdom of Judah, again, there was a king and he was still reigning. When did the reign end and who did it? God did. Now the Babylonians, admittedly, they came, but who brought them? Who permitted that to happen and who allowed the overthrow of that southern kingdom? It was God. Isn't it fascinating to notice one by one all of these examples of things that God has done? I would ask you to notice one of the opening verses on that slide again summarizes it so well. God rules in the kingdoms of men. He does. Now, you and I don't have the eternity of wisdom in our back to appreciate His movement through time, 
But isn't it true that that very bottom, we could say this, whether it be the president that currently is in office and is now going out, or whether it be the next one, or whether it be several of them, isn't it powerful to notice, is God working through the reality of these individuals and the governments that they, in fact, bring with them to bring about specific matters touching the reality of His will? Again, you and I aren't wise enough to know that for sure. But this much is guaranteed by virtue of the Bible. He can do it. It is entirely possible that He's doing it. The matter for us is to appreciate not only is God throughout the ages involved in government, but point number three is this. The providential use of government as it relates to the working of the will of God. Now again, this lesson is very interesting, it seems to me, as you and I think about some of what we're about to see. Now keep in mind, we've just learned God is very much in a position that He can be involved in civil government. We'll look at this point. According to the Word of God, it has frequently been the case that God has used government to carry out His will in a very specific way. Let's look at a few examples to help bolster that idea in our heart. First of all, could I ask you to begin by recollecting Isaiah 45? Now, we'll not need but one little detail out of the opening verse of that chapter. Let me set the stage for you, if I might. At the time of the writing of the book of Isaiah, we encounter the fact that, again, the people of God had not yet gone into captivity. They were still a nation resident and serving God beneath their own government. However, Isaiah had been told by God, and he even told it to the people, there's coming a time you'll be taken captive. And yet, the ruler of that foreign power, there's going to come a time, one of the rulers is going to be named Cyrus. Would you believe that it would be well over 250 years from the time Isaiah wrote that until finally a little baby boy named Cyrus would be born? Talk about prophecy. God revealed to Isaiah the name of the Persian king, and his name was going to be Cyrus, and he, believe it or not, is going to be called my anointed. Here's a foreign ruler, a heathen by Jewish standards, and he's going to be called my anointed. Now that didn't mean that that man named Cyrus was going to be a, a strong servant and a Jewish person, but it did mean that the government over which Cyrus was ruling and reigning, he's going to carry out my will, God says. And when you and I read the book of Ezra, we know that's what happened. Because Cyrus signed a governmental decree allowing the Jews to return from Babylon. Isn't that amazing? God foretold what was going to happen. Question, did God use Cyrus to bring about the return of his people? He did. Now, Cyrus wasn't a believer in God. He wasn't a believer, if you please, in the nature of the God of Moses and the God of Abraham and the gods of the other Old Testament figures. But this man Cyrus was a one used in the very hand of the great God of heaven to bring about heaven's will. Here's an example of an enemy nation. A nation enemy is an enemy in many ways to the people of God, but God used them. Look at another example. In Isaiah 10, verses 13 and 14, a very specific set of language is used in reference to, again, a nation known as Assyria. 
God says, the rod in my hand. Assyria is the rod in God's hand. How could that be? Assyria is an enemy nation, a foreign power, often opposed to God's people. And God says, they're a rod in my hand. They will carry out my will, punishing my people, doing that which they need to do. Now again, Assyria never believed in God in terms of a national approach. But it is true, of course, that God used them. What about Babylon? The next example on the slide. Could I ask you to notice this one occurs several times in the, in the Old Testament. Babylon, again, was a nation overruled by Nebuchadnezzar for a rather lengthy period of time. He opposed the people of God. He often directed matters against the service of God. It was this very one who we read about frequently, and he's the one who ultimately captured the southern tribes and took, them into, and took them into captivity. How did all that happen? Let's let God tell us. God says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Would you listen to that with me? You and I think today about Christians being God's servants, and we think about individuals who devoted their lives in obedience to God as His servant. And God says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. He's ruling over a nation, and they will bring about my will, even though they don't know that's what they're doing. Isn't that a fascinating point? God can use nations to bring about His will, even though they may not acknowledge that's what they're doing. Several times in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 25, 9, as well as Jeremiah 27, 6, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is called the servant of God. Maybe those points have been enough to cement in our heart the fact then that not only can God be involved in the nature of civil governments, He often by providential character can lead those governments to carry out His will. When you and I think about the present government of our land, or the one that's about to come into office soon. Could it be that God then is going to utilize the features and the particulars of these governments to carry out a particular feature of His will in our country? Again, you and I don't know for sure about that, but it certainly is possible. And so it is, as you and I close that slide, isn't it true? This very point is what troubled Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 1, verses 6 and following, Habakkuk, in fact, as a noble prophet of God, had the opportunity to hear God say, I am going to use Babylon to punish my people. And Habakkuk said, God, how can you do that? They're more wicked than your people are. God said, Habakkuk, I'm going to use them. They don't know I'm going to use them, but they're going to subdue my people, and then I'll punish Babylon for being the ruthless people that they are. God rules in the kingdoms of men. The Old Testament as well as the New is a testimony to that truth. Point number four then, what does that say about you and me as Christians? The lesson text that Brother Vestal read to us earlier was from the book of 1 Peter. Would you please turn back to that as we reflect upon it? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. The book of 1 Peter in its five chapters is a statement about difficult days. It's a statement about suffering. It's a statement about hard times and the fact that Christians may well endure them. 
But in the midst of all of it, what are some approaches that must be understood? Christian submission is the critical one. And so I've entitled it like this. As I mentioned at the outset of our lesson this morning, it is entirely possible that the days could come when things are not as favorable for Christianity as they are now. You and I have been able to live in a very, very good time. We can practice Christianity and there's no threat really to our life. There's nobody waiting at the door here to meet us with a gun and haul us off to jail if we come. There's nobody that storms into your house or mine and in fact takes away every Bible that they find. You and I have never lived under that kind of threat. Could the day come that could again happen? Sure it could. Will it? None of us know. The fact is, though, the Bible prepares us for that eventuality even if we realize the fact it could ha- that it could occur. In Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5, there is a notable tension that exists between Christianity and its practice and the civil government. You remember the scene with me. Peter and John, there in Acts chapter 3, there was a lame man. And he was laid there every day and he would ask an alms of those who entered into into the place of worship. And he asked an alms of Peter and John. Peter rather powerfully said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man did. He'd laid there day after day for years and everyone knew he was lame. And suddenly this man was leaping and joyously, in fact, serving God. The civil authorities couldn't deny a notable miracle had been done. They couldn't deny it. So their reaction was this, We can't have Peter and John preaching like this. So they called them in and they said, Don't you ever preach in that name again. That's pretty plain. Well, you and I know exactly what happened. They went and met with the brethren and they prayed, and they prayed for boldness. Think about that. They prayed for boldness. God, give us boldness that we might be able to preach the unsearchable message and riches of Jesus. And so they went right back out and started preaching again. Now, the civil authorities had said, don't do this. It didn't change their mind. They went right back and preached again. Now, at that point, you and I might notice, they again arrested them. The civil authority still had power. They arrested those men. And they said, we told you not to preach, and you did it anyway. And so, in as much as they were hauled into prison, the time came for them to appear before the final civil authority. And so, in essence, the judge said, you go and bring Peter and John, and let's have sentence. The officer went to get them, and the officer came back and said, They're not there. Well, where are they? We don't know. The Bible reveals, of course, that they had been miraculously released the previous night. And yet, finally, an individual came into the proceedings and said, I found them. I know where they are. They're doing it again. They were back preaching. The civil authority didn't deter them. This tension existed and notice they were under threat of their life. Let's develop some of these points. 
God commands that you and I must be submissive to the civil authorities so long as they do not countermand the things of God. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse number 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king is supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. That's very plain, isn't it? Submit yourselves, Christians, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, this ordinance of man, those are the regulations of the civil government. We as Christians are commanded to submit to them. In other words, we are not in position to try to overthrow, overturn, to build insurrections. Interesting. No wonder there's a part two to this lesson. What should we say about civil disobedience? All of that will be the study next Sunday morning. I hope that you'll be prepared to look at that with me, but let's make a final remark or two about this lesson. This submission that you'll notice here, isn't it rather interesting how it is asserted? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king is supreme, so the highest-ranking civil officials. But the next verse says, or unto governors, lower-ranking civil officials. You see, civil government, at whatever rank it may be, national, state, or local, it has the right by God to exist. And Christians are expected to submit to it. You'll notice then, no wonder... That even includes the paying of our taxes. There are many who might affirm, but the government's going to use my money to do what the Bible does not uphold. It's going to fund abortions and it's going to do a number of other things. That didn't change what Jesus said. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. 21. You and I again recognize... It was the wisdom of God that asserted that government has the right to exist. And although they may choose to do some things of which you and I do not approve, nonetheless, that's better than having no government at all. And we're commanded to submit to them. And so, as you and I close that particular slide, verse number 2 of Romans 13 joins in this discussion rather powerfully. It says that to resist then that civil government is to resist the power of God. We are in fact opposing God if we oppose that civil government. Now that's very challenging and very interesting when we remember that Paul wrote that Roman letter to people living under Nero. Nero was the ruling monarch at the time and he was an evil man. In fact, in some cases, almost it seems bordering on insanity. And yet, Paul commanded, if you don't recognize the power of that submission, you're actually rejecting God. I'd say to you that it doesn't matter which political party you and I voted for. A president is taking office this coming Friday at noon. And as Christians, it's our duty, whether it be this president or the previous one, or yea, those that may occur in the future, according to the Bible... Christians are commanded to submit to them to, in fact, honor their right to exist and to appreciate that even in them God may be able to work things that are ultimately to His great good. It's rather fascinating as we close that slide 
that you'll notice in 1 Peter 2.17, he even said, honor the king. Honor the king. Again, the king may not always do everything that you and I would wish that he would, but we're supposed to honor him. May you and I appreciate then that this kind of lesson prepares us for, again, its sequel, its continuation next Sunday, when we will look at the specifics of when do we disobey the government then? And on what basis do we do it? And what should be our attitude even then? We'll study all of that next time, and I trust that we'll be ready to consider that then. This morning, as we come to this point in our lesson, this slide of summary I have asked you to consider. Christianity, the civil government. We have given some thought to four amazing truths. First of all, civil government has the right by God to exist. Secondly, God's often been involved in it. Thirdly, God frequently uses providential things concerning it to bring about His will. And finally, Christians are commanded by God to submit to it. Even if it doesn't always do what is in harmony with Christianity. As we develop that next Sunday, the points, again, I hope will be as interesting as these have been. And we'll use the Word of God to direct us along that way. Of course, the greatest King of all is Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you and I will recognize that every single individual will one day, whether they have previously or not, bow in humble submission to His great kingship. We're told in Philippians 2, verses 9 and following, every tongue will confess. They may not in this life, but on the day of judgment, if they have it before, they will then. Wouldn't it be much better to do it now? If there's someone in the audience and your life isn't as it ought to be, maybe you've never become a Christian, realize that you need to turn your life over to the one who can so dutifully and amazingly help you through this life and prepare you for eternity. You need to, of course, believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and confess His name and be baptized. If you have taken care of that, though, at some point, but you haven't lived faithfully, Jesus still loves you. He hasn't given up on you, but to this point, perhaps you have turned your attention from Him. Why don't you come back to the one who died for you? Set the example in your life that you know that you should and be a powerful influence so that you can lead others to the Master. If sins have been of a public character and you'd wish to confess them and repent of them, we'd be delighted to pray for you. Today, if we could be of help to anybody in these ways or others, we'd invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.